It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Thursday, June 11th, 2009. Heresy season is uh, winding down. But don't worry, we have plenty to talk about. <laughs> now, why do I call it heresy season? Well, the way I see it is is that uh, most of the uh, heretics that we track here at Fighting for the Faith are most busy from the uh, months of September to June. Yeah, that's right, September to June, and then after that, they're on summer vacation. Uh, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris Rosebro, your servant in Jesus Christ, and you are listening to Fighting for the Faith, the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying to the Word of God. This is a program uh, that your pastor may have warned you about. He doesn't want you listening to this program if uh, he's not giving you the goods. And what are the goods? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the proclamation of the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Yeah, you. Even if you've been a Christian your entire life, these are this, the, Christ's death on the cross is not some basic baby theology that's, that, that's the equivalent of spiritual milk. And that, you know, once you get past that, you can get on to the weightier things, you know, making yourself righteous. Yeah, if, if that's your view of Christianity, I hate to tell this to you, but uh, you've been sold a bill of goods. And so what do we do here? We compare what people are saying in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Christianity, and we compare it to God's Word. Why? Well, we believe that God's Word is true. Not because we take some blind leap of faith or because one day when I had really low blood sugar and was having a hypoglycemic attack, I had a testimony in my heart that the Bible was true. And so I can tell you subjectively that it, it's absolutely true because I could feel it. Yeah, we don't encourage any Jedi uh, techniques here. We don't want you to reach out with your feelings or anything of the sort. Instead, we conclude that the Bible is the Word of God because Jesus Christ himself, who is a historical figure, whom the eyewitnesses to his life and to his ministry, claimed that Scripture was the Word of God. And, of course, he claimed to be the Word of God incarnate, the Logos, if you would, if you are familiar with John chapter 1. And uh, he proved his claim to being God in human flesh, by raising himself from the dead. All other points of theology, if they're not hinged to the gospel, uh, then 99.999% of the time, they're hinged to the Mosaic law. And I've got news for you. The law cannot save you, and it cannot sanctify you. That's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to condemn you, to kill you, to destroy you, to get, bring you to absolute spiritual poverty so that you have no choice but to say to God, I'm sorry, I repent, please forgive me. And the good news is, is that Christ hears that prayer and he forgives. Not because you've, you're so special, because only somebody who has faith who has been given by God 
repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Only that person could pray such a prayer. And it is a prayer of faith. And we have a loving and gracious God in Jesus Christ. And many of you, you don't hear this enough. Well, we've come to solve that little problem, rectify it, if you would, and continue on a day-in and day-out basis, proclaim to you, yes, you, somebody who's been a Christian your entire life, God's mercy and forgiveness offered to you in Jesus Christ. All right, we've got an interesting program lined up for you today. Of course, I've been busy dumpster diving for Jesus in order to <laughs> bring you this program. I've got a little bit of a listener email. Some of, a couple of them are a little tongue-in-cheek, but I've also got a very good email regarding uh, the comments that I made a couple of programs ago about identifying yourself as gay. Uh, I made the claim that, uh, that it was not r- good news at all, <clears throat> excuse me, that the ELCA church was, uh, was going to continue their ban on non-celibate gay clergy. Well, why did I say that wasn't good news? Is because any clergyman who identifies himself as homosexual is ultimately still an, un- an unrepentant homosexual, somebody who identifies themselves according to their sin and not according to Christ, not according to what God has made them, but according to their perversion. So I got an email on that today. And let's see, we got a new story. Uh, Father of a reincarnated uh, W-2, that's World War II pilot, says his Christian faith is undetoured. We're going to read that story and then take a look at what does Scripture say about is, is, is reincarnation one of the possibilities? Can you be a Christian and believe in reincarnation? Hmm... And we're going to answer the question, well, if if not, then uh, where did this child get this information? Then we're going to uh, listen to some audio from a video from uh, our good friend, uh, the Thun- Sons of Thunder, the Drunken Glory guys. Uh, they, they've made a trip to Australia and have sent in a dispatch, uh, you know, an update, if you would, from the shores of Australia to let us know how their Jesus trip went there. So we'll talk about that and really kind of expose their false doctrine of Christian sanctification. We'll spend a little bit of time in scriptures uh, tearing that apart. And then for our sermon review today, since we did a T.D. Jake sermon, I want to make sure that let's go ahead and cover some of the bigger boys here. We're going to we're going to cover Creflo Dollar yeah, Creflo Dollar. We've got a sermon we're going to be reviewing entitled The Law of Seed Time and Harvest. That's right. Let me read that to you again. The Law of Seed Time and Harvest. You think you're going to hear the gospel in that one? Well, if you are a Creflo Dollar enthusiast, I've got bad news for you. He ain't preaching the gospel. He's preaching a different gospel, and he's twisting God's word in the process. And we'll tear that apart today in our sermon review. All right, moving along. <clears throat> To our listener email, <clears throat> uh, Brad, who uh, who likens himself as Captain Bradcor Awesome Gearson, he, he says, uh, "Dear Chris Rosebruh, <clears throat> in a recent podcast, you criticized the concept of bringing guns to church." Well, yeah, I, I really criticized the concept of having an event whereby you. Get national attention, letting everybody know that you're having a bring your gun to church day. Um, why? Because we're not supposed to as Christians. Well, as the church, uh, we have more important stuff to do than supporting the Second Amendment. Although I'm a firm Second Amendment guy. You got to understand something. I 
am a firearms enthusiast. I love my firearms. Okay, I am the proud owner of a handgun and a couple of really, really nice assault rifles. <laughs> love them. Anyway, I just wanted to let you all know that. So you know, but the thing is, is that even though I am an avid defender of Second Amendment rights. That's not within the purview of a church. It's not appropriate. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. Anyway, let me get back to Brad's email. He says, I'll have you know that in some cases this is difficult to avoid. That that would be the case of bringing your gun to church. He says, in my home state of Maine, it is required by law that you bring your shotgun with you to church in case of Native American attack. You may find this odd and silly, but I tell you, our churches have not been victims of a Native American attack in quite some time. <laughs> I, I'm glad to hear that this, uh, this, this law that requires you to bring your shotgun to church has deterred the Native Americans from attacking your churches. He says, I'm sure that the same cannot be said about the churches in Southern California. Well, this, this may be true. I don't, I don't think we... Um, the churches there were ever subject to Native American attack, at least not that I'm aware of, but I'm no longer in Southern California. Just so you know, Brad, I, I'm in the greater Indianapolis area now. He says, I urge you to, uh, to think about this the next time you consider talking down about bringing firearms into a place of worship. Your brother in snark, Brad, Captain Bradcore, awesome Grierson. <sighs> Clever. Okay. Um, Andrew Deloach, Esquire, writes, he says, uh, Chris... Uh, there are more than two legitimate uses for a gun. I use mine to impress babes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that tidbit of it. <laughs> Does it work? I, just, I'm curious to know, uh, Andrew, to, you know, since you use your firearms to impress babes. What do you say? I mean, come on. Where do you carry your firearm with you in such a way that the women are going to go, Oh, look at his handgun. Oh, look at that rifle. I've got to meet that guy. Some, Andrew, I I don't know. You you have to give me some more data. At this point, I'm not convinced. I may, I'm thinking that you may be speaking tongue-in-cheek. Now, uh, Andrew Deloach also wrote another email regarding Monica Dennington. Monica Dennington is this uh, gal from Irving, Texas, who's got TikTok ministries, and she did the uh, <clears throat> uh, basically blasted Calvinists and called them to repentance. We did a full blown review of that, and that was a that was a basically an act of service uh, from uh, a Lutheran to my Calvinist brothers. He says, uh, Deloach says, he says, I have one word to describe Monica Dennington. It's unhinged. I also have one word to describe my reaction to her diatribe about Calvinists. Amused. <laughs> he says, okay, I actually have more than one word in reaction, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. As a Lutheran, I have to wonder if Monica's next installment of the final word <clears throat> would be aimed at me and the rest of us who follow and idolize and trust in Luther. Now, <clears throat> Andrew, now, you're an attorney, and so you understand that it's really important as part of your job that words mean things in context, that they have meaning. And so, you know, now, I, I'm a fellow Lutheran. However, I, I must protest. He's, I do not idolize and trust in Luther. I consider him to be a fine theologian. 
And uh, however, I do not idolize and or trust in him. I just wanted to make that distinction. If you do, then then uh, I have to pull a Monica Dennington on you and, and, and insist that you repent. Anyway, we continue. It says, after all, we use the guy's name to identify ourselves just as Calvinists do. Well, this is true. I attend a Lutheran church. So are we the next on the chopping block? Um, probably. And if not, I'm a little upset. I, I, I want equal time. And bring it, Monica. <laughs> well, you know, um, Andrew, we can we can just hope and pray to that end, can't we? Because um, it was absolutely entertaining. Plus, you know... If Monica spends 25, 30 minutes or maybe three or four installments calling Lutherans to repentance, well, the way I look at it is, is that that's what we call ready-made radio. I mean, <laughs> I've got two or three episodes of Fighting for the Faith already written for me, and all I've got to do is walk through it. <clears throat> okay. Moving along. This email is actually uh, the, the more serious one. I want to take a moment here. This is from Julie from Oklahoma City. And she says, Dear Mr. Rosebro, thank you so much for saying that it is still a sin to be gay and celibate because it is wrong to identify as gay or homosexual. This was certainly the case in my own testimony, for when God was calling me out of homosexuality, he was also calling me to repent of my gay identity. Only knowing a couple of verses that condemned homosexuality at the time, I didn't fully understand uh, then when uh, my identity had to do with anything, but still I began to repent. God mercifully led me to a Christ-centered ministry for those struggling with sexual sin, and then to a Christ-centered church where through the gospel of Christ and his cross, I began to understand more fully where my identity lies. I have found so much hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, he gave me repentance and faith, and then he forgave me for my wickedness by the work of his cross. I am still so humbled and can at times still find it difficult to believe that I've been forgiven of the utmost of atrocities. Therefore, I need to hear the gospel daily, not just for my own encouragement, but that so I, so I may also glorify and give praise to God rightly in the context of who he is as the just and loving Redeemer of Creator. This is an amazing email. And this isn't all. More, more hope has been given to me as through the gospel the Spirit is sanctifying me. Sure, I still struggle in moments of weakness and simple old-fashioned temptation that we will not be completely free of until we are with Christ face to face. Also, there are things in my life that may make me more tempted in this particular area of sin, i.e. both a lack of bonding with my same-sex parent, gender insecurity, childhood abuse, and the fact that I am a, a descendant of Adam. I was born gay only insofar as I was born with a sinful nature. Julie, great point. And sometimes I sin as Christians do still sin, but God picks me up, puts me back on the path of redemption through the cross. But as I am being sanctified, my struggle is less and less. Through this process of sanctification, I look continually at the cross and understand that my response to the abuses against me, etc., that tempt me toward homosexuality, responses such as rejection of my gender, fearing men, and finding women to meet needs for same-sex love sinfully, homosexually, were just as sinful as the sins committed against me. So through the gospel of Jesus Christ, I look humbly to the cross 
at how Christ has forgiven me, and through His work of the, uh, uh, through this work of Christ, I offer mercy and forgiveness to my abusers. Oh, that is awesome! Through the gospel, I trust in His character and the righteous acts of justice, and I see Him as my defender, and that my fear and judgment of the male gender is sinful. Through gospel-centered relationships with brothers and sisters from my church as they accept, include, and treat me as a woman, I understand now that he, my creator, has redeemed me and is making me to be the woman he desires me to be, woman being the operative word. To accept that I am gay or even ex-gay for my identity is not in my former sins, not only dismisses, but outright denies the gospel of Christ and his work of redemption. To remain gay would be to remain unhealed and unsaved from the things that tempt me of homosexuality and my sinful responses toward this temptation. To remain gay would be to remain a slave. My heart breaks for those pastors who do not understand the gospel and choose to remain a slave and for their congregations filled 100% with sinners who will never understand the gospel in that church. Thank you for proclaiming the gospel daily. Love your show. Julie, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Julie, I got to tell you, this is probably one of the most gospel-centered emails I've ever received. And I got to tell you, the thing I love about this email is the fact, not only is it focused on the cross, but your emphasis there is in showing the love that Christ has given you to other people and how the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins, even for the atrocities that you've committed and even for the atrocities I've committed. I want you to understand, Julie, I am no better than yourself. In fact, I, I, I'm I've convinced I need to have an arm wrestling match with the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul claims that he's the chief of sinners. I beg to differ. But the thing I love about your email is is you're so transparent with the forgiveness that Christ has given you, that he has given you. And I would even point out the fact that you say you might have issues dealing with men, yet Jesus Christ, God and man, purchased, redeemed you, died for your sins, and won your salvation, gave you repentance and faith, and he created you as a woman. It is only Satan, only Satan in his twisted and perverted ways that would say otherwise, that would make you comfortable in an identity outside of Christ and what he has made you. And this email is so refreshing and awesome. I got to tell you, words almost fail me on this. But again, thank you for this great email. And we will continue to pray for you and keep you in our prayers, Julie. And thank you for blessing us with this clear preaching of Christ and him crucified and how he has redeemed you, a lost sinner. All right, moving along here, we have a little bit of time. We'll dive into this. We're going to start this now and finish it on the other side of the break. Father of reincarnated World War II pilot says Christian faith is undetoured. This is from the Christian Post, by the way. Uh, This is from the Christian Post. Who wrote this? Um, Josh Kimball, Christian Post reporter, put this one together. Uh, The father of a boy who he believes is who he believes his son was a World War II fighter pilot in a past life 
says his Christian faith has remained intact despite his new belief, while his wife says the situation has, quote, enhanced my belief system. All right, we're already off on the wrong foot. I mean, does, does anyone detect any problems here? Reincarnated World War II pilot? Their son is a reincarnated World War II pilot? And that their Christian faith is intact? And they, they have an enhanced belief system? Quote, I am a Christian, and this has only reaffirmed the strength of my Christian faith. That's odd, um, because this is contrary to the Christian faith. Um, this is Bruce C. Uh, Leninger said in an appearance Monday on Good Morning America. Quote, it's a new reality, he added. It's a new reality. Around nine years ago, uh, Leninger's then two-year-old son, James, began to have reoccurring nightmares of a plane crash that got worse and more frequent as time went on. I'd wake him up, and he'd be screaming. Andrea Leninger told Primetime Live co-anchor Chris Cuomo back in 2004. She said when she asked her son what he was dreaming about, he would say, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. Over time, James's parents said he revealed extraordinary details about the life of a former pilot Details that eventually convinced even Bruce Leniger, who originally thought the idea of James remembering a past life was baloney. Him, J James, giving us the name of the ship, the name of the man he flew with, the location where he was shot down, and then three years of hard work verifying all the details right down to an eyewitness account seeing the face of James M. Houston Jr., the w uh, World War II fighter pilot, being shot down, describe, describing the way the plane hit, matching exactly... With, Jane, with what James described, the overwhelming details were there. Leniger call, recalled Monday, I had to give up the battle. Though the concept of reincarnation seemingly clashes with, the verse, with verses in the Bible, such as Hebrews 9.27, which states how a man is, quote, destined to die once and after that face judgment, Leniger said the events of the past few years have given him a much deeper understanding of the fact that our spirit has an eternal life. Yeah, see, he has a deeper understanding than just what the Bible says. He's 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 basing this on some kind of experience, okay? And uh, quote, and we really don't know. We still have to go on faith on what happens. He said, he stated, he James just is just an example of a spirit deciding to rejoin us. All right, we're gonna stop right there, and uh, when we get back from the break. We're going to take a look at what the Bible says about this. Okay, now, the reason why I do this is because, remember, Jesus Christ, in describing the last days, said, be sure that no one deceives you. Make sure that no one deceives you. Okay? And believe me when I tell you, the devil has a bazillion different ways in which he can deceive a person. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to take these claims that it's possible that his son is a reincarnated World War II pilot, and as as sincere as this as this man is, I mean, I I don't think he's he's in this for the money, at least from what I can tell. Um, the, just assuming that he's a sincere guy and he really believes this story, we have to compare it still to the Word of God because sincerity doesn't decide truth. And we have to have an authoritative, authoritative way of answering this question. The authority stands in Jesus Christ. 
Is this what Christ taught? Is this what God's word teaches? And if it contradicts God's word, then how, where are we, we got to come up with some alternative explanation here, right? Uh, because can you take this young boy's soul out and put it under a microscope and run some carbon-14 dates on, you know, on, on it to see if it's really that old? Is it possible that there's other places for these, quote, re, uh, uh, memories to have come from? Well, the answer to that is yes, and so we're going to get we're going to get to that on the other side of the break. If you would like to email me, just want to remind you, if you would like to email me, you can. Uh, my email is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. I'm generally a friendly guy there. Look me up. My name is Chris Rosebro. Or if you'd like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets on Twitter, look me up there. My name is Pirate Christian, and just hit the follow button. We'll be right back. Being good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando... We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church.
We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, I got a little bit of John Crowder coming up later uh, in this half hour. Amazing what's happening nowadays. Right. Want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Why do we mention that? Well, because this is actually your radio program. <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're learning from this, if you are continuing to grow in your biblical understanding, to grow in your discernment, and you want to see Fighting for the Faith continue to thrive and be brought to you, then we need your financial support. You can support us a couple of ways. One is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Yeah, a friendly yellow donate button. Click on that. It allows you to send your gift in securely online using your credit card. Or you could do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're in the middle of talking about this story from the uh, Christian Post about a gentleman, Bruce Leniger, who says that his young boy is a reincarnated World War II fighter pilot. Now, again, here's the issue, okay? Some of the things you have to watch out for, whenever you hear things like this, God is doing a new thing, okay? God is doing a new thing. That's a buzzword for we're not, we're not being biblical. What we're doing contradicts the Scripture, but we're going to we're going to claim that God's doing a new thing so that we can trash the old thing which is God's word. Or whenever you hear something like, well this is a new reality. There's no such thing as a new reality. There is reality. It is neither old nor new or changing or whatever. It, it reality is what it is. There is no new reality. This is spiritual spiritualized talk. This is spiritualized speech. Now, understand something here, okay? 
Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, desiring to, pr- uh, to devour people. That's what he likes to do. Okay? And believe me when I tell you, it is not beyond Satan and his legion of demons and the forces of the enemy to deceive people using spiritual trickery. Why do I say that? Well, we have instances of it in the scripture. For instance, the slave girl who was possessed by a spirit of Pythos, Python, okay, right? That spirit is you know, was associated with the Oracle of Delphi, and she was able to make a living doing fortune-telling, right? Okay. Our, the devil, by the way, and his legion of demons have been around for a while. Well, the thing about the human life right now, because of the cursed nature of our humanity, remember, the wages of sin is death. And death is not a natural thing for humans, not at all. When God created mankind he created us as good that humans were designed to live forever okay now in our fallen state what is death well it's a tearing apart of our body and our soul okay humans well we don't live very long on the what at the top end of the range about 120 years that ain't so long you think about satan and the demons They've, you know, they've been around as long, they've been on the planet as long as we have. So Satan and his demons have had a long, long, long time to study humanity. They know us inside and out. They know our foibles. They know our weaknesses. They know, they are masters at deception and temptation. Okay. The the stories never change. Now, here's the deal. Where would... There's really a couple of different places that uh, somebody could get information of this sort. They could read a book or a regimental thing uh, you know, talking about the history of particular fighter squadrons during World War II. That's where you can get information like this. You can write the book yourself and interview the witnesses. In Satan's case, was Satan around uh, during World War II? Answer, yes, he was. Satan was around during World War II. Do you think Satan may know, Satan and his demons may know the life story of a few people that lived back then? Absolutely. Would he know intimate details of things? You you bet your baby he would, okay? So when we hear stories like this that contradict Scripture, understand Satan is real, he's been around for a while, And he is more than capable of, if you would, planting ideas into people's heads, giving them details about stuff that they never would have been able to get any other way. These are details that he was privy to and happened to have himself. I throw that out because that is a very plausible spiritual option in this particular case. What is not plausible is the idea that humans reincarnate. Why do I say that? Because it contradicts Christ and his word. And Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and raised himself from the dead three days after he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, therefore proving his claim to deity and proving that he was the 
conqueror of death, the one who died for our sins on the cross, and the one who has redeemed us and bought us. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord and giver of life, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is our almighty God. He doesn't make mistakes in this situation, and we can authoritatively say that he and his words teach something contrary to Scripture. And just because some well-meaning, zealous person has been duped by Satan, and by the way, as funny as this sounds, I know people who've who've experienced spiritual deception themselves. I know a guy and a gal who they were married and were absolutely convinced that God told them that you know to to marry other people. God would never say something like that. Yet they they prayed about it and believed that God was speaking to their heart to do such a thing. Now some of you are going, no, that's crazy, and others are going, I know somebody who had that happen too. You know, some guy goes into some spiritual la la land. He thinks God's telling him to ditch his wife. God would never tell a guy to do that. Anyway, why? Because uh, that's a sin. All right, okay. Let me back a little bit of this up from Scripture. We're going to begin with Jesus Christ himself. I want you to pay attention to uh, what happens in this particular story. Uh, Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19, and we're going to read through 31. Uh, Of course, I'm reading from the English Sanctified Version. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. I pointed this out yesterday, and I'll point it out again. Notice that the poor guy covered with sores has a name, and the rich man doesn't have a name. I don't think this is by accident that Jesus is telling such stories, because when we read in scriptures, uh, we read about the Lamb's Book of Life. And Jesus, you know, says, don't rejoice that the demons obey you. He says, rejoice that your name is written in the book, right? Okay. Lazarus' name was obviously written in the book. The rich man, his name wasn't written in the book. Christ never knew him. Kind of knew of him. He was a rich man. Mm -hmm. So there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered in sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Notice the suffering here. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, is there's a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Verse 
But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now notice, this story is not told in parable fashion. In fact, the, the details of this are quite different. I think the story itself has the ring of history to it, a history that only Christ himself would know. And in this, we learn death is it. Scripture makes it clear. For instance, Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, about Christians, he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done, whether good or evil. So this passage, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, make it clear that for Christians... For those who have faith in Christ, regardless of what era they've lived in, whether they lived in the Old Testament era and were looking forward to the promised Messiah, or whether they lived in you know past Christ's death and you know and life, and they look backwards to the working of the Messiah, everyone is saved by faith, regardless of what era they live in. That to be absent with the body from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so here we hear of Lazarus being taken away by the angels. He's present in heaven, right? But as for unbelievers, we learn that upon their death, they're basically held until judgment, or held in judgment, and they're suffering at, the, at you know until the, the day of judgment. This is what the scriptures teach. Let me let me continue reading some more passages there because I think this will help make the point. Um, again, coming back to Luke uh, sixteen, notice that Laz the the poor the the rich man wants to send Lazarus so that the, his brothers won't go there. He understands that upon their death, that's where they're going to go. Well, Hebrews nine twenty three says this. Okay, twenty three through twenty eight. Listen to this. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
Now, the reason why I read not Hebrews 9, 23, uh, 9, 23 through 28, I read it in context, is because, again, if you just read Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. That's a true statement. But by putting it in its context, you get the fuller vision of what's going on here, because what is this truth bound to? If you read the passage in context, you find that this truth regarding the fact that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, this biblically here in Hebrews 9 is bound to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross for our sins. In fact, it's inseparably bound to it. So if reincarnation were true, uh, then Christ's death on the cross really isn't true, and what is being spoken of here about his once-and-for-all sacrifice isn't true. Again, let me read this to you again in context. Keep that in mind. Watch how the two are bound together. The man lives once and dies and face judgments to the fact that Christ gave a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. For Christ, verse 24, has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So you see what I'm saying here? The fact that we live once and face the judgment is inseparably bound to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. To get rid of the one is to get rid of the other. So I can definitively say, and you can definitively say as a Christian, when we read Hebrews 9 in context, it absolutely rules out reincarnation. doesn't matter how sincere or how convincing the, quote, facts may be. Because the one thing that this father in this story here from the Christian Post is assuming is that there is only one source for having memories that are not your own. That's not true. There is another source, Satan, the deceiver. And so what has happened is is that this man, Bruce Leniger, has been deceived. Scripture is clear. It's appointed for once for man to die and then to face the judgment. And this is tied directly to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. There's nothing else that can be said on the matter. It is what it is. So, there you have it. That's what the Scriptures say. And what do we do in a situation like that? We pray. We pray for Bruce Leniger. We pray that God would open his eyes. That the deception that he has fallen victim to through the cunning plans and actions of Satan would be overthrown in his life 
because there is no such thing as a new reality. The reality that he's speaking of is not a Christian reality. It's not a biblical reality. Therefore, it isn't really reality. It's a reality of deception. And if you don't think that things are going to get worse than that, keep in mind that Jesus said that there would be those who perform miracles who are false Christs. Yeah, wait till that happens. <laughs> then you're going to really have to dig into God's word. And that's the, that's, the, that's the point, folks, is that miracles do not in and of themselves prove whether or not they are from God. Miracles can have their source in God and his will, or miracles can be false miracles and have their source in Satan and his desire and plan to deceive people and lead them far afield from Christ. In this particular case, I'm of the opinion, and I could be wrong, there may be more at, at stake here, but trying to put the best construction on it, I think that Bruce and Andrea Leniger have fallen victim to a false miracle. A, ver- a miracle wrought by Satan himself, designed to shipwreck their faith, and for them to get off track of Christ and him crucified. And I do believe they are off track because they believe in a new reality and have a deeper understanding of the eternal. Is it possible to have a deeper understanding of the eternal when the source for this deeper understanding is not grounded and rooted in God's word? No. This is nothing more than what I would consider a very special case of satanic deception. Sad. Sad. And we pray for the Leniger family that Christ would open their eyes, set them free from this deception, and cause them to repent of their new reality, of their deeper spiritual view, which is neither a new reality or a deeper spiritual view. All right, yeah, looking at the time here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take our second break, and when we come back, we'll be looking at uh, listening to some video from John Crowder uh, from the uh, recent Sons of Thunder trip to uh, Australia. You got to hear this. From time to time, we have to check in on the the drunken glory guys to see what they're up to. So uh, you definitely don't want to miss that. And then when we're done reviewing that and taking a look at it, critiquing it biblically, we're going to get into our sermon review. Our sermon review today is from Creflo Dollar and his sermon entitled The Law of Seed Time and Harvest. Law of Seed Time and Harvest. Apparently, uh, we're not going to hear the gospel. So those of you who are fans of Creflo Dollar, um, I apologize, but you won't be hearing the gospel today because, well... From the best I can figure out, he doesn't preach the biblical gospel. We'll give you some examples of that when we return from this break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian, and we send out subversive microblogging tweets almost daily. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Two of fighting for the faith. Yeah, those drunken glory guys. I'm telling you, the new mystics, uh, they're nothing more than the uh, old satanically duped. There is no other way to describe it. This is satanic deception at its highest or lowest. Maybe it's stupidest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in for hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Okay, uh, John Crowder and the gang, uh, we've uh, talked about them. These guys are uh, into some kind of new mysticism, and they're basically literally jetting around the world, letting everyone know how they can experience the glory of God and they're into token the Holy Ghost. Um, we got one guy who's taking bong hits off of a baby Jesus doll. We got other people who are getting drunk off the wine of heaven. At least that's what they claim. And uh, John Crowder is one of these gentlemen. He's made, recently left uh, Australia. They were there teaching this satanic tripe uh, to the folks of Australia there in Adelaide. And uh, here, listen up. Hi, everyone. How's it going this week? Uh, this week I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia. You can see behind me the, uh, the Sydney Opera House here and the uh, big bridge and uh, a lot of glory on Australia in these days. You know, God's really invading Australia with a supernatural revival. I'm telling you, it's not just on the horizon, but it's right here. It's right now. Uh, this week we're going to show you some clips. Yeah, i got to correct him. God is not... Uh giving a supernatural revival to Australia, if this is how he's defining it, then biblically we have no other choice but to conclude uh, that Satan has got uh, false spiritual signs and wonders that he is unleashing on Australia designed to mislead 
people, lead them astray, and uh, and deceive them and send them to hell. Just wanted to correct him there. From uh, some of our meetings in Adelaide, where we were with the guys at Field of Dreams, and uh, it was just incredible. We saw dozens of healings, uh, deaf ears opening up, people whipping their uh, hearing aids out, arthritis healed, guys that had, had arthritis for years, bound up, uh, completely healed. We saw uh, some weight loss miracles, people just dropping weight supernaturally. Weight loss miracles. By the way, I, I watched the entire video, and there was a segment where there was a lady who uh, still looked rather rotund to me uh rotund yeah she uh it was a woman of girth just like i'm a guy of girth um and uh, she was stretching her waistband as if she had experienced some kind of a weight loss miracle you would figure you know this is one of the weird things um if you're going to experience a weight loss miracle uh don't you think that god would uh do more than just have you lose a couple of pounds and for you to be able to put a couple of fingers between your belly and your waistband. Just a point. I mean, if seriously, I mean, if God's going to do a weight loss miracle, but if he were to do one on me, I would expect that by the time he was finished, that I would look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, I really, you know, really buff and thin and lean and you know. and a lot of heavy, drunken glory. You know, Australia uh, has really experienced renewal back in the '90s, back after Toronto. A lot of stuff really blew through. And then on the back of that, there was a lot of, you know, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Blew through. Uh, by the way, it, the scriptures warn us about being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. What an apropos description. Kind of an excellence movement and, um, you know, sort of a purpose-driven, you know, relevance kind of thing, which is, which is great. It's awesome. God really wants to, to, the church to be relevant in this hour, but also to walk in power. And I believe that one of the things God is doing now is he's really adding a supernatural element on the back of this, uh, this, this relevance that he's been instilling in the church so that you're, you're going to have people. So, in other words, we have drunken glory purpose-driven people? They can connect with a populace on a natural level, but they can also release the supernatural shingding of heaven. Let me tell you. The what? The supernatural what? The supernatural shingding of heaven? Oh, this is just blasphemous. Harvest is going to come. It's going to be messy. The harvest ox has to be released, <laughs> which is Jesus. What? Jesus is the harvest ox? You're referring to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, sir, and you're you're calling him a harvest ox? You're kidding me. Uh, working miracles. It's the spirit of might. It's the spirit of power. It's the spirit of a miracle working power. It's the spirit of Antichrist. It's the spirit of deception. It's the spirit of Satan. It has, this has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins. This, sir, is absolute poppycock. Psalm 92.10 says, he exalts my horn, my authority, like a wild ox and fine oil is poured over me. That's the oil of, of, of the spirit of might, the anointing. <laughs> Notice that he just takes some really bizarre, weird passage and quotes it off the cuff and then tells you that it's supposed to mean a particular thing. No context whatsoever. Yeah, yeah of might and god's releasing that i'm telling you in australia we've been seeing some incredible miracles while we were in adelaide uh the mayor of the region her her daughter had a, a lump uh, a couple inches big underneath her her arm completely just disappeared uh right i don't believe that for a second hey uh, those of you listening to fighting for the faith in australia and by the way i know there's quite a few of you uh could you all do us a favor would one of you or maybe a couple of you try on purpose to reach the mayor of adelaide to confirm this miracle 
uh, yeah, I, I think it would be nice to uh, get some kind of a statement from the mayor of Adelaide as to whether or not John Crowder and his gang in the Drunken Glory Tour were able to, to perform a miracle on the daughter of the mayor of Adelaide and have some kind of a tumor disappear. And uh, uh, complete miracles. Incredible. Uh, we saw a lot of cool things. The winds of God began blowing through the building. Could feel the winds just ripping through the building. Uh, a lot of glory. A lot of angelic activity. Uh, it's a spirit of revival. The spirit of revival is coming to Australia. And I'm telling you guys... Uh, no, this is the spirit of deception. These guys are not preaching Christ and Him crucified. And they have a very corrupt doctrine. Listen carefully. It's, it's a fresh move. We've, we've had the, the passion here, the extravagant worship. You think hill songs. You think a lot of the... the the, the really cool stuff God's been doing over the last few years, but there really is a glory movement that's coming right now. And it's the next wave for Australia. I'm telling you, the supernatural, you're going to have tons of young people. You know, there's been a, a revival among the youth in Australia, but this revival is going to be more than just, uh, you know, better worship meetings. It's going to be supernatural. You're going to see signs, wonders, miracles, and you're going to see a revelation, a clear revelation of the gospel, evil, free living, that on the cross, Jesus Christ perfected us once and for all. Okay, did you hear that? Uh, this is <clears throat> this is where uh, we've got something we can check against Scripture. Remember, what do we do here? We compare what people say in the name of God to the Word of God. He just said uh, that there's going to be outpourings of the Spirit and that there, people are going to experience evil-free living. Let me back up the tape here just a couple of seconds so we can hear this in context. Listen carefully again. You know, there's been a, a revival among the youth in Australia, but this revival is going to be more than just, uh, you know, better worship meetings. It's going to be supernatural. You're going to see signs, wonders, miracles, and you're going to see a revelation, a clear revelation of the gospel, evil, free living, that on the cross, Jesus Christ perfected us once and for all. Our sinful nature was completely cut away, which means that we can live in the bliss continually day by day renewal's not a season it's not an old there's the lie that's that's the lie evil's been cut away so that we can experience the bliss all right happened to have spent some time in my bible today in preparation for the program so that we can do a little bit of comparative work here between what john crowder just said and what the scripture says. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, I read from the Apostle Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these exact words. We read, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, blasphemer an ex, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I have received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy in deserving a full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
Now, he just said that we're supposed to experience uh, what is it, evil free living? Because, you know, the sinful nature has been cut away. Well, Paul here calls him ch- himself the chief of sinners. But uh, we'll build a little bit of a better, better case here. Uh, Paul also in Romans chapter 7. Now, any of you out there want to uh, basically say Paul wasn't uh, wasn't an apostle, wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit? I mean, he wrote, I mean, the majority of the New Testament. We read... Um, Paul writing, he says, well, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? Well, by no means. Yet if I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things that I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I want, I, I, I do not want, is the thing that I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. Notice Paul here is writing as a Christian, as a man who uh, has witnessed Christ, who learned his doctrine directly from Jesus, and yet he's saying the things he doesn't want to do, he does, and things he doesn't want, the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. Hmm. So I find it to be a law that when I do the right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, let's take another example here, something really simple. Jesus Christ, when the apostles came to him and asked him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? He said, yes, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, I just want to point this out to you, John. Uh, Jesus Christ, in his prayer the prayer that we are to pray daily. Really, it, it, it's a daily prayer. Why do I say that? Because in the prayer, we pray to our Heavenly Father that He would give us this day our daily bread. So, a good thing for Christians to be doing is praying on a daily basis. And this prayer, I think Jesus intended for this to be a staple 
in our everyday prayers to Christ, to God, our Father. That being the case, Jesus in this prayer teaches us to ask God to forgive us our trespasses and our sins. Why would he do such a thing if Christians don't have a sinful nature anymore, that it's been cut away so that we can experience the bliss of God? See, John Crowder is lying to you. These outpourings of the spiritual that he's discussing there in Australia with the Sydney Opera House back behind his uh, right shoulder. These signs and wonders that he's talking about, they're not from God. They're from the devil. He isn't preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. He's preaching false doctrine. He's taking people's eyes off of Christ and he's putting them on themselves and some ecstatic experience that they're supposed to be getting if they do the right thing. And how does he justify? Well, at the cross, Christ cut away our our sinful nature and so we can live evil free living. And that that makes it possible for us to experience the bliss. This is 100% satanic lie that contradicts God's word. In fact, if you're a Christian, you sin daily and you sin much, which is one of the reasons why Christ, who knows us better than we know ourselves, for he is our great God and our King, He tells us and teaches us to pray daily, forgive us our trespasses. And the good news is that we have a merciful God in Christ who died for us, loves us, and forgives us. And so when we pray daily to God to forgive us our trespasses, we can also preach the gospel to ourselves and know that God's word says that in our loving and gracious heavenly father we have forgiveness of sins and can stand before him not in our unrighteousness but clothed clothed with the righteousness of Christ All right, I just wanted to play that for you because I thought that was rather interesting news coming out of Australia there. And again, if those of you who listen to uh, this program in Australia, if you can help us out and do a little legwork for us and get a hold of the mayor of Adelaide there, if we can confirm this little miracle that he's claiming about, it would be really nice to, uh, because I don't believe it for a second. Uh, just, Just something within me says it doesn't pass the sniff test. All right, we are to that portion of our program where we do our sermon reviews. That's right. From the good, the bad, the ugly. All I can say is... um, You might want to go get your spiritual hip boots on. It's going to be thick. We're going to be reviewing a sermon by Creflo Dollar. That's right. This is a guy who refers to him as a prosperity pimp. I think it fits. 
The name of the sermon is The Law of Seed Time and Harvest. Just by way of question, before we even get into our sermon review, does Christ tell us to go and proclaim to all nations the law of seed time and harvest? Or to proclaim the good news of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? It's a rhetorical question. I knew that. Alright, let's uh, let's kill that music. Oh wait, this is the good part. Okay, so without any further ado, here is, um, oh, wait a second here, uh-huh, a little technical difficulty. I'm a world changer. I'm a world changer? Yeah, why do I feel like his little jingle has a lot in common with uh, Joel Osteen's Discover the Champion in You. Let's join Dr. Creflo Dollar for today's message. He's a doctor. The doctor of deception, Creflo Dollar. I want to talk to you about one of the major laws that operate in the kingdom of God system. It is a law of seed, time, and harvest. Now, don't get ahead of me. I want you to understand that this is the kingdom of God and how it operates. So let's begin in Psalms 122 once again. And I'll cover Psalms 122, Matthew 6. We're going to talk about the law of the kingdom, the law of seed, time, and harvest. Psalms 122, verse 6. And let's read verses 6 through 9 out loud together. And I am going to dump this word in you. I mean, if I could, I could if, I, if, if it was legal and if it, was, if it could work, I'd cut your head open and just pour it in there. That's a weird thing to say. I'm creeped out. But, ladies and gentlemen, if you listen to me today, you will know how to take care of the needs in your life. Now, look what he says here. Let's, look, let's read verse 6 through 9 out loud together. Ready? Read. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. All right, stop for a second. I do believe he is reading Psalm 122, verses 6 through 9 from the King James uh, Version, which in some senses is creating a little bit of a problem here. Let's see. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. Now, this is one of those passages that if you would read it in a modern translation, you might get a different idea as to what's going on in this passage because the language isn't antiquated. Let me read it to you from the English Sanctified Version. Uh, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls, and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the household of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, 
this is interesting because here we are in Psalm 122. And folks, do you see anything in here? Just offhand, you may want to uh, look this up in your own your own Bible. That is, uh, do you see anything in here that says that we have a law of seed time and harvest going on in here? I, I just bring this up. Uh, because, well, it's, you know, it's important. Now, let me read this from the NIV here. Uh, let's see here. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May their peace, may there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. Okay, now, the reason I'm bringing that up, because two modern English translations take the word um, uh, shalwa, which is a Hebrew, um, which can be translated as prosperity or tranquility, and they're translating it as security, which is interesting because that is, again, one of the po positive possible uh, ways of translating it. But both the ESV and the NIV, let's check the, e, uh, uh, let's check the uh, NASB on this, peace with, and prosperity. Okay, so, uh, okay, is this a law of prosperity that he's preaching here? Again, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because one of the things I've noticed is that people who insist on only using the King James Version, uh, sometimes the reason for that is because the King James Version is not so, it's not so easy to detect the errors of their preaching. Uh, th they may be basing their heresy upon the antiquated English rather than the original languages. I point that out. That's one of the ways that you can divine what's going on here. Now, we said to you before that before the kingdom had come, they even saw it right here in these verses of Scripture. Jerusalem is a type of the kingdom of God. And he says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Okay, notice he's allegorizing right out of the chute. That you may prosper those who will love this holy city. Now, he didn't say that those who love to prosper are going to be the ones to prosper. He said those that love the kingdom will be the ones to prosper. Whoa, 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 whoa. He didn't... It, no, that's... What, did you see what happened there? Again, th sometimes these things happen so fast. If you're... You know, it's, it's misdirection. Okay, it's like a magic trick. You know, I, 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 when I was a teenager, I, I learned a few magic tricks. And one of the ways that you accomplish a so-called magic trick is by getting somebody's attention off of what you're really doing. And so you, there's ways in which you can misdirect people's attention... So while they're looking at one hand, you're doing something with another. That's the idea. The eye will follow the misdirected hand. And what he just did here is he is taking uh, Psalm 122, where it says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. And said that he's allegorized it, first of all. He says Jerusalem is a type of the kingdom of God. And he says, if you love Jerusalem, then God will prosper you. He's turned it into a formula. Yet that's not what this says. In fact, let's take a look at Psalm 122 in context, the whole thing. A song of a song of a sense of David. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. 
Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, right off the bat, is this teaching some formula that if you love if you love the peace of Jerusalem that God will prosper you that's not what this passage says at all and that's the thing with scripture twisting it happens so quickly he allegorized it and then turned it into a formula and next thing you know he's making a law out of something that where there is no law this doesn't teach the thing he says it's teaching so the first thing I want you to get a hold of is that everything we do has got to be about the kingdom it's got to be about the kingdom of God. You're going to have to develop a relationship with the kingdom of God. You're going to have to fall in love with the things of the kingdom. Okay. You're going to have to become addicted. Law or gospel? Is this good news or is it law? You're going to have to. 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 Is he telling you what Christ has done for you? Or is he telling you what you're going to have to? By the way, you're going to have to. That's law talk. Gospel talk is what Christ has done for you. ...to the increase of the kingdom, and you're going to want to see the kingdom succeed. And when you, when it all becomes, when in your life, when as a Christian, when it all becomes about the kingdom of God, that's when God can show up and do some things for you. Because oh, oh, So as a Christian, not until you make everything about God, then God can show up. You know, what's funny, uh, Dr. Dr. Deception, uh, I mean, Dr. Dr. Dollar... Is it, by the way, did he change his last name to Dollar, or was that really his last name? It's appropriate. Um, Dr. Deception, just got a quick question for you. Um, does the scripture teach us that we have to make ourselves right morally before God, before Christ will forgive us? No, I, I, I bring that up as a point, uh, because scripture says that... Uh, uh, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And notice that God, he doesn't wait for us to clean up our act because um, actually we would never clean up our act. God doesn't wait for us when we're completely powerless, God moves. You've twisted Psalm 122 and you're not bringing me any good news here. You're basically preaching some new concocted law. And you're making statements about God that aren't even remotely close to what Scripture describes about him. Remember, in the kingdom of God, it can't be about selfishness. And when increase is about selfishness, and when becoming a millionaire is about selfishness, and when buying a house is about selfishness, then you've missed the entire kingdom. Oh, okay, so you can become... Notice he's equating being a millionaire with being something about the kingdom. See, if you, as soon as you can make it about the kingdom, then God will make you a millionaire. Hmm. What you've got to understand is this. Don't desire to be out of debt so you can be comfortable, but desire to be out of debt so you can help increase the kingdom of God. Are you listening to me? Uh, you got that out of Psalm 122. How again? Oh, that's right. By allegorizing it and then misapplying it. Yeah, just don't desire to be a millionaire so you can be more comfortable, but desire to be a millionaire because of what that will enable enable you to do for the increase of the kingdom. See, when you become what desire to be a millionaire, 
Hang on a second here. Yo, didn't we just read the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Where where did the rich man go? Oh, that's right. Hell. <laughs> Come kingdom minded. And when you become when you have the kingdom of God in view, that's when things are going to start happening in your life. In the kingdom of God, it is about you being blessed to be a blessing. It's not about you being blessed so you can be comfortable. Nothing wrong. God doesn't mind you being comfortable, but it cannot be increased for selfish gain. It's got to be increased for the kingdom, praise the Lord. That, that when a promotion happens in your job, you immediately see the kingdom in view. That when increase comes, it's about the kingdom. That- what about if you lose your job? Is that about the kingdom or is that about something else? Uh, remember the 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 one who had the name in the story that we read earlier today on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith? There was the rich man who had no name. And then Lazarus, the poor guy who longed even for the scraps that fell from the table of the rich dude. Um, and yet somehow his life was about the kingdom of God. Why? Because we learn from Jesus that he goes to heaven. The angels carry him away. Hmm. That when, when, when somebody puts something in your hands and, and, and you didn't really need it, you know it's about the kingdom. You know, to be a blessing means that you are a funnel by which God can flow his favor through you into somebody else's life. And the greatest purpose for being successful is to be able to make somebody else a success. So first base has got to be, I've got to develop a love relationship with the kingdom of God. It- All right, law or gospel. I've got to develop a love relationship with the kingdom of God. Is that the law or is it the gospel? That's 100% law. What's the purpose of the law? To show you your sin, Romans 3.20. It's not, you can't save you. Uh, not even here on this planet. He's giving you a law. It cannot be about my own personal kingdom. It cannot be about my house. It cannot be about my ministry. It just can't be about me. The me man has got... You know, I think it's rather convenient that he's preaching to all these people that they need to be selfless with their money. I bet you anything he expects them to write a check during this service. To die if... To him. If the kingdom of God's going to operate. But in the kingdom of God, it's always going to be about something away from you. It's always going to be about what you can make happen in somebody else's life. How can you become a part of increasing the kingdom? Because here, here's how it happens, like a boomerang. Whatever you do for the kingdom is going to come back and happen to you, praise the Lord. And he got that from Psalm 122, how? I'm just not seeing it, either in English or in Hebrew, whether from the King James, uh, the ESV, NASB, NIV, I didn't see it in any of those. So the secret here is not working harder. The secret. The secret? Hmm. Trying to be successful, but working smarter, working kingdom-minded. Allow the kingdom to be in your mind and seek the good of the kingdom, praise the Lord, because you're trying to benefit the kingdom. Now, if you can get that set, if you can align your thinking in line with what I just said, you, 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 you need to prepare yourself for a whole new realm of, of results and experiences because you will have experiences when you have a desire to promote the kingdom. So if you can get yourself perfectly in align with this formula that he's laying out here from the twisted 
interpretation of Psalm 122, it's going to take you to a whole new level of results. Well, um, okay. Uh, The problem with the law, God's law, does it, does God grade on a curve when it comes to the law? Or does he expect perfection? Doesn't James say that when you've broken one of the commandments, you've broken them all? So every time, every moment of your life that you do not love God with all of your heart, you're not only guilty of breaking the first commandment, which says you shall have no other gods before me, you are also guilty of breaking the other nine. This is a formula for disaster, and it's all deception anyway, because this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ come to earth to teach you particular principles on the things that you can do to align yourself in life so that you can become a millionaire? Notice that was what's, what he, can, he equates with the kingdom of God. We've got to be people who have a desire to promote the kingdom. When you promote the kingdom, that promotion in the kingdom comes back and you see promotion in your own life. I'm telling you this is it. In your own life you see promotion because you're concerned about the kingdom. But when it's only about you, only about your house and your finances and and your life and your family, then you're not going to see the best Kingdom promotion can't show up when all of that is based in selfishness. Hallelujah. Now, y'all might as well get with me because I'm mad at the devil and I intend on breaking his neck in five different places. That's ridiculous rhetoric. By the way, uh, Christ has already defeated the devil and Creflo Dollar, you are working for him. Why would you break his neck? He's making you wealthy. It is my objective this morning to open up five cans of whoop on the devil. And how do I do that? I absolutely make sure you understand everything coming out of my mouth. And if you have an understanding, you can't do no better until you know better. And I intend on making sure me and the Holy Ghost this morning make sure you know better. So when you walk out of this place, it will not affect you because... You know, he talked about opening a can of, you know, five cans of whoop on the uh, devil. Just want to let y'all know, um, if he continues uh, preaching this stuff and doesn't repent, um, this is satanic doctrine. I mean, let's just say that he and the devil, they're going to be spending a lot of time together. Because you're not operating by that system. You're operating according to the system of the kingdom of God. The system. The system of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is a system? This is not the good news of the gospel at all. The good news of the gospel is not about the system of the kingdom of God. Wow. And so the first thing is you aligning your life with the kingdom. Good luck. Best of luck to you. Those of you who want to align your life with the kingdom so that you can become millionaires, go knock yourself out. You won't succeed. Because you can't align yourself with the kingdom of God. At all. If we're not willing to do that, we might as well forget about all the principles that we learn. 
Will I align myself with the kingdom? And then notice what he says. When you do this, then peace will be within thy walls. And that is not what Psalm 122 says. It does not say that when you do this, then you will have peace. It does not say that. And prosperity will be within thy palaces. Now, it's interesting that those two words, peace and prosperity, derive from the same Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom. In other words, continuous well-being in every arena of your life. Wholeness in every arena of your life. And he says, when you become uh, kingdom-minded and, and when you align your life in line with the kingdom, then there's going to be shalom in your house. No, it does not say that. There's going to be shalom in your palaces. There's going to be shalom within your gates. There's going to be success in your house. There's going to be security in the midst of turmoil. That's what peace is. There's going to be wholeness in your house. All of these things come in your house because of your alignment with the kingdom. Complete hogwash. If that's the case, none of us would have it because none of us deserves it because none of us aligns ourselves with the kingdom of God perfectly. The law demands perfect obedience. This man is lying. And then he goes on and he says, he gives you why. If he's going to bring success to you, why? For my brethren and my companion's sake. It's for my brethren and my companion's sake that I have peace. It's for my brethren and companion's sake that I have uh, uh, prosperity, that I have success. You see, God's making me successful, but my success is now going to extend out and affect somebody else's life. The kingdom is going to be uplifted because I have such a desire and such a hunger to see it increase that when it shows up in my life, God can trust me to use it to increase the kingdom. Oh, what? Garbage. Complete scubalon. This is crap. God can trust you. God can't trust you as far as he could throw you, Creflo. You are absolutely, with every word coming out of your teeth, lying to these people. Feeding them a pack of lies about the, quote, system of God. This is nothing more than some man-made formula designed to do one thing. Fleece people and get them to write you a check. And so now that moves them to do verse 9. Yeah, notice uh, he hasn't really even mentioned Christ here. Uh, and he's preached about himself because, he, see, he is the perfect example of a man who is so selfless that God has made him a millionaire. Because of the house of the Lord our God, because of the house, I'll seek thy good. Because of the house of God, I'll seek to get out of debt. Because of the house of God, I'll obey the principles so I can make millions. Because of the house of God. Whew, wow, did you hear that? Oh, man. See, I'm doing it because of the house of God. I'm not doing it because of my house. My house is going to be taken care of when I take care of his house. I'm doing it because of the house of God. I'm praying because of the house of God. I'm living right because of the house of God. I want to be anointed because of the house of God. Everything that I seek, I seek it for the house of God. But that has not been so in most of the body of Christ. We've gotten to the point where we're seeking things for us and our house. And I'm trying to get you to see if you seek it for the kingdom, your house is going to be taken care of. You remember in, uh, oh, Lord, give me that scripture. Uh, I believe it was in Hosea when they said that uh, you so much, but you bought in little. 
said that you made wages, you had a job to make money, but it was like you... Uh, could you give us some context on... By the way, just because you're quoting a Bible verse doesn't mean that you're telling me what it really says, because you have to read things in context. Remember, our three rules for biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. Put it in a bag with holes in it. Now, that goes against spiritual principles. You're not supposed to... You're not supposed to... Uh... Goes against what? It goes against spiritual principles? Weird. Uh, so much and bring in little. Why? Because the Bible says when you give, what, what, what's going to happen? When you give much, what it says? You're going to... And if you give little, you're going to get what? Let, let's look at that. Go to Haggai 1, 4. Now watch this. Look at what happened. All right. Haggai chapter 1. Haggai, Haggai 1, 4. Four. Okay. Do like I did. Go to your table of contents, find the page, turn there. You get there a lot quicker. Instead of sitting up there talking about, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah. And then you end up in Matthew. Yeah, I see what you're saying, Pastor. <laughs> if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, now look what happened here. In verse 4. Is it, uh, excuse me, yeah, Haggai 1, I am so excited, I have got to calm down. Haggai 1, verse 4, is it time? Yeah, I'm sure you're excited because you feel like you've got everyone eating out of the palm of your hand, the garbage that you've put in it, and they're sitting there lapping it up, and when this is all said and done, that's going to be one ginormous offering that's going to be coming your way. Time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house, referring to God's house, lie in waste. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, and you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, build the house, and I'll take pleasure in it, and I'll be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, below it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in waste, and you run every man unto his own house. Notice he said, you want to know why this is not going right? He said, consider your ways. You are putting your house before my house. Ladies and gentlemen. All right, got to stop here. Watch what he just did again. This is a classic bait and switch. It is a classic misdirection. We read Haggai in context. Who's it written to? Who was Haggai written to? Who is being addressed here? Okay. Now, the reason I'm asking this question is because this actually is really important in properly interpreting this particular book. Okay, I'm looking at a little commentary that I have here. Uh, let's see here. The authorship Haggai is unknown to us apart from this short book. Okay. Just doing a little bit of research. A, a decent commentary will help you out here. Uh, background. Here we go. Everything in this brief prophecy hangs on this one imperative, build God's house. 
the setting reflects, reflects much of the history of Israel. The days of the tabernacle, the beginning of the monarchy under Samuel, David's desire to build a dwelling for God, Solomon's building the temple, its destruction by Nebuchadnezzar, and the returning exiles who began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem in 538 B.C. More immediately, the setting of 1 verse 8 begins with the rise of Cyrus. In 599 B.C., Cyrus was was only the king of Anshan, a district of Elam. He joined with the Nabadus, a weak successor of Nebuchadnezzar, to conquer Ekbatana, the capital of Medea, in 550. Cyrus broke the Nabadinus and turned against him to capture Babylon in 539. Nabadinus had lost support because of his disinterest in Marduk, the other traditional Babylonian deities. He failed also in his effort to secure Egyptian help against Cyrus, and the other. And on the other hand, Cyrus, respectful uh, of all deities, was probably welcomed to Babylon by the priests of the religion so unpopular with Nabadus. Anyway, you see what's going on here? This is a prophecy written to the returned exiles uh, who were coming out of the exile of Nebuchadnezzar. The 70 years they were in Babylon, remember that? Okay. So we read verse 1. Haggai 1.1 In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Okay. Who is this written to? The people who are being addressed. It's still the word of God, but you got to be real careful here because you can't draw one-to-one correlations here by first allegorizing it and then misapplying it. That's exactly what Dr. Dollar has done here. Um, So uh, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Hmm, they've come back from exile and they are saying that it's not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Which house is this that's being referred to here? The temple. Remember, when Israel was taken out of Egypt into the wilderness, one of the things that was built there was the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle were all of the instruments that God had declared that Moses had created. They were copies of things in heaven. And they were for the um, the, the, the priestly job of the bloody atoning for sins through animal sacrifice, right? All of those pointing to the Messiah. So they come out of exile, and there is no tabernacle, and now there's no temple either. And what were the people saying? Well, the time hasn't come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This has a historical context. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. Your, your 
clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages puts so, uh, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house, of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and the grain, and the new wine, and the, new, and the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man, the beast, and all their labors. Okay. So this, this was written specifically to those coming back out of the Babylonian captivity. They get back to Jerusalem, and they don't make it a priority to rebuild the Lord's house. Uh, but they're busy doing all kinds of other things, but just not that. It shows their lack of faith. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Amen. See, what's the response? Fear, love, and trust in God. Okay, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord the message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit and all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Pretty straightforward, right? When you read it in context... You don't have to worry about being deceived. So is this telling us that uh, if we attend to the, quote, uh, allegorical house of the Lord, that God is going to um, prosper us? No, it doesn't. Really, I mean, the temple isn't there today. I mean, if we were to really take this literally, we would have to go build a temple on the Temple Mount. That's because that's what this is referring to. But what what Dr. Dollar, Dr. Deception here has done is allegorize this passage by taking it out of context, twisted it, and now created some kind of a law, the law of, of seed time and harvest, so that you can become a millionaire if you just tend to the Lord first. Gentlemen, put the kingdom first and everything in your house will be taken care of. Put God's house first. Seek the good, seek God, the good for the house of God. I'm seeking good so, so, so I can benefit the kingdom of God. It's, Do you see, you see, this is just a complete lie. He's completely misapplied this passage. It's what you make happen for others. That's how you get it to happen to you. It's when you pray for other people that God turns around and gives you an answer to your prayer. But you cannot maintain selfishness and expect to get God in 
on your side. Wait, wait, wait a second here. Um, when I when the Lord told me to pray, He taught us to pray. He said, "Pray, say these words: Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Notice that Jesus didn't say, pray that your neighbor has bread and then God will give you bread. Just want to point that out. It's what you do for the kingdom. Say out loud, I'm kingdom minded. All right, now let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Can't wait to hear this. What an opportunity. What an opportunity to prove people. Prove to people that the kingdom of God works and it real and it's real. Oh, yeah. If you define the kingdom of God as if I get everything aligned, then God's going to make me a millionaire. That's not the kingdom of God. Oh, I so look forward to these testimonies that are coming in. That in the midst of all of what's happening, the power of God's moving in the lives of people, and they're having to ask the question, "How is this happening?" And we get a chance to tell them about our Jesus, and we get a chance to tell them about the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter six. Now, here we're going to address needs. How many of you have needs right now this morning? Ooh. How, how would you like to get those needs met based on the kingdom? Now, 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 this is so interesting because it's so interesting how we define needs. Lord, thank you. Thank you. I, we need to talk about this. It's so interesting how we define what we need. I saw a man preaching one day. He had no arms and he had no legs and he was on top of this table. And after I finished seeing him preaching, he was preaching on joy. I turned the television off and I said, Lord, I ain't got no problems. I have no problems. After I saw that, this guy's preaching on joy. And I'm thinking everything I ever complained about, I have no problems right now. And you know how I've learned how to, to, to redefine my, my, where needs were concerned? It's when I go to poor areas of this country and I see what they're living with. When I took a tour over to Brazil before we start building those homes over there, and bless God you ought to see them, boys, coming up. We got us a bona fide neighborhood going on right there, amen? Sidewalks, curves, and everything. It's looking good, amen? And I went in this, I can't even call it a house. I stepped over this mosquito-infested pond in this mud place, and the walls were made of, Oscar, would I be exaggerating if I say cardboard and paper? And the floor was mud, and there were like, what, 16 people per hut? And... She starts testifying about how God is love. And I thought, I ain't got no needs. I don't, I don't have any needs. How do I say I have needs and I just saw that? See, in this country, we really need to redefine what we call needs. Most of the things we call needs are just desires. And God don't mind me and your desires, but look at what you're spending your time trying to do. I'm believing God for a new car. You got three. I'm trying to talk to y'all, man, because we, we're going to have to. Didn't he just talk about being a millionaire? Boy, this is schizophrenic. 
We're going to have to redefine this. You get mad at God because you didn't get the third car. You get mad at God because you didn't get the big house. And so I walked in and I'm like, wow, to see the state of it before. And then I went into one of the, the, the ones that we built. And it didn't take but three, $4,000 to build this. And I walked in there and there was a mother with her kid. And they introduced me to her and she was talking in Portuguese. And the only thing I could say was abrigado, which is just thank you. <laughs> I didn't want to look like an idiot. Abrigado, abrigado. <laughs> and she said in her language, she was so grateful. Thank you for my home. And if you ever need a place to stay, you're always welcome to stay here with me and my family. I felt so proud of y'all. I said, look at what they built. Look at what they did for one family. We sought the kingdom and we changed the whole family. And that day, boy, I got inspired. I said, I like the way this feel. How much you need to build a whole neighborhood. And I made a decision, I'm going to be with you in partnership until we get this whole neighborhood built. Because at that point, I realized I didn't have no needs. I didn't have any needs. And I began to redirect how I even made certain decisions. Do what we can do. If God wants to support it, then he'll support it. If not, you know what? The greatest thing, the thing that I have to have, I've got to have a voice and i got to have that Bible so I can preach. And I can preach to you anywhere. So how do you define your need? What do you need? Well, I need to pay my light bill. They didn't have no lights. They didn't have no lights. I want you to look at what may have turned into greed. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for what you already have because the blessings of God follow you. And you're supposed to be blessed. And you're supposed to be comfortable. And you're supposed to even enjoy the good that has come your way. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not telling you to, to, to feel guilty for what you got by no means. All I'm saying is, can you please come away from yourself? And see if you can help somebody else experience the blessing that is on your life and remember that God has blessed you so you can be a blessing and don't ever just be blessed without being concerned about how you're going to be a blessing. Uh, notice that uh, if you can just figure out how to have the right attitude, you know, that you will bless in order that you can be a blessing. Isn't that it? By definition, selfishness. I mean, I'm going to bless you so that God will bless me. Ultimately, isn't that about me? Just saying. And yes, I want you blessed. I want you. I want you living in castles. I want you having billions in your bank account. I want you to have all that stuff done. You know why? So when the needs of the kingdom come up, bam, we do what we got to do. Oh man, we do it right there. But we, if we got to go, and you know, we we broke ground in. Did we break ground in Cameroon? We're getting ready to break ground. And what's that for the hospital? For the school? And then what's next? Fifty acres of land for the school. And then, and then a clinic, and then the church. Okay, see, if you, if you can get prospering like that, Brother Clinkscale can come to me and say, 
look, man, we need $100,000 to build this, this, this. The pastor, I got that. And then, no, I said it first. No, I said it first. Don't make me cast that devil at you. You know you did it the last time. Let somebody else be a blessing, will you? That's where it ought to be. We ought to be, we ought to just be competing to see who gets to pay for it this time. Because we got the kingdom at mind. We got the kingdom in mind, man. We got to get that thing built over there. Right there on the corner, we're opening up a medical center so people who have a hard time with health insurance can come in there and bring their babies in there instead of let them stay home and get burned up with fever. Thank God we can come in here and get the word, but what are we going to do with this word? How are we going to take this word out so it can affect our society and, and affect what we do? What good is it to be blessed and just sit in an account somewhere? I got a new investment plan that'll blow TD Ameritrade out the water. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. What is that? Investing in the kingdom. And that means please make your check payable to Creflo Dollar Ministries. Investment made in the kingdom. It'll never go down. You understand what I'm saying? NASDAQ will go down. Dow Jones will go down. But the kingdom is always going to be up. It's always going to be up in good times and bad times. You would do yourself good to invest in the kingdom. Somebody shout, I'm a kingdom investor. Ain't got no job. I'd like to invest. Find a penny. Don't tell me I ain't got no job. Find a penny. Do what you can do. Do what you can do for the kingdom right now and watch the kingdom come and turn your situation around. Do what you can do for the kingdom right now and watch the kingdom turn your situation around. If you are on well. This is a literally a spiritual Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Yeah, this is up there. with his Creflo Dollar is the spiritual version of uh, Madoff. I tied off that welfare check. I know people have a problem with a man named Creflo Dollar telling you that you ought to tithe. Let me tell you something right now. I'm already a believer in tithing. You can't talk me out of tithing. I've been tithing for 28 years, and I'm not going to stop tithing because you don't believe in tithing. Uh, what's he reinforcing? You giving money to him. And what does that equal? Giving money to the kingdom. Hard to believe that that's the kingdom of God because I just don't see how the kingdom of God can be associated with a man who twists and mangles God's word like this. Blatantly for money. I am a tither. I'm connected to the covenant of God. And in the time of hard time, it's my tithing that'll guarantee that I can get out of this thing. It's my tithing. Let me. Allah, no gospel, 100% created man-made formula let me, let me. Woo! Oh, oh. okay somebody shout I'm blessed to be a blessing oh, this is sad somebody shout I'm a kingdom investor where does it say that in scripture by the way just All right, now, here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Oh, I was afraid you'd never get to it. They were talking about not being anxious and not worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and how you're going to be clothed. And yet that is the concern 
of most Americans and most people in the world. Here we go again. I do detect another person completely biffing it on the seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. <sighs> what is the call there in that passage? And um, let me let me beat him to the punch so we can actually get the biblical passage correct for the first time. All right, what's Jesus trying to do here in the Sermon on the Mount? Especially in chapter 6, starting at verse 25. He knows that people are anxious. I mean, he's preaching this to people who are subsistence, if you would, you know, farmers and and fishermen. I mean, these are people who, they don't have big, rich mansions. Few of them do. They're barely able to pay their taxes. And it's all right. So is Jesus trying to solve their uh, scarcity problem or is Jesus preaching to them that they would have faith in him? Think about it. Is Jesus giving them a formula for prosperity or is he preaching repentance and faith in him? Listen, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, could add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith Jesus is chastising them for their lack of faith therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear the Gentiles seek after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So 633. Over and over again what we hear people do. Is twist this into saying. If you are righteous and seek God's kingdom. Then he's going to make you rich. That's not what this passage says. And the admonishment is for you to trust in God, for he truly is trustworthy. And when it says seek his righteousness, it's specifically referring to the righteousness that is by faith. A righteousness from God that is by faith from first to last. That what is what Jesus is admonishing here. And this is not some formula. If you do these things right, then God will make you wealthy.
What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? And how am I going to be clothed? And in verse 31, he says, Therefore, take no thought or worry about what shall we eat and what shall we drink or wherefore shall we be clothed. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. He says, even sinners seek the same things. He says, but your heavenly father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Now, the first good news is this, that God already knows what you need. God already knows what you need. And what most people don't understand is they still saying, I need money. And what you need is a word from God. Because a word from God will show you how to get the other thing that you need. And people have a tendency that when they be... When they get in financial problems and they have lack, they have a tendency to stay home and be depressed. You go to church, no, nah, I don't feel like it. Why? Well, I got to figure out how to get this house paid for. You didn't, you, do you think you're that smart? You figure that out by coming and sitting in an atmosphere of faith. Sitting in an atmosphere of faith so you can hear from God and hear what God has to say about that situation. But now look what God said. He says, I'm going to show you how to get your needs met. I already know about it, and I'm going to show you how to get it met. Next verse. Seek ye first. What? What a powerful scripture. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. How many of you believe that? I mean, you believe it right now today. Because here's what, here's what he said. He says, I know you have needs, but here's what I want you to make priority. Here's what I want you to make priority, the kingdom of God. I want you to make the kingdom priority. I want you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things you need shall be added. Notice he's turned this into a formula, a legal formula. And how is he defining seeking first the kingdom of God? Making sure that you tithe, make your check payable to Creflo Dollar Ministries. If you make it priority. No, he didn't say start off kingdom way and then midway go back to world way. That's canceling out what you did in the kingdom. You make kingdom priority. Well, listen to the Amplified. He said... But seek, aim at, strive after, first of all, his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek his way of doing and being right. Make God's way of doing according to the kingdom. Make, God, make God's way of being right according to the kingdom. Make it the priority in getting your needs met. So, what you're saying is, I have a need. The way I'm going to meet this need is based on how you meet it according to the kingdom. So I'm seeking to find out from the word of God what I'm supposed to do to get this thing met. I'm going to handle it the kingdom way. What I've got to do in order to get the need met. Now listen to me. I'm going to say this over and over again until you get it. The Bible is not a book of rules, but what? A bag of seeds. Ooh, so the Bible is not a book of rules. It's a bag of seed. There you have it. Right out of the horse's mouth. The, the Bible's not a book of rules. It's a bag of seed. And you've got to plant the seed. And what's the seed? Your money.
Wow. So there you have it. Uh, Creflo Dollar's Bible twisting and uh, prosperity gospel deconstructed from one of his sermons. Folks, if you know anybody that uh, is listening to this man and sending them, sending him their money, go and plead with them from the word of God and show them how he is twisting God's word and how they are being deceived. This man is a charlatan. This man isn't a Christian pastor. He's a charlatan. He's a man who twists God's word for money, and he's making profit by fleecing God's sheep. Hmm. Well, there you have it. (laughs) Ah, He didn't disappoint. Yeah, just as bad as Joel Osteen, just as bad as Bishop T.D. Jakes. All kinds of fun. Folks, sadly, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, unlike Creflo Dollar, I don't have... A, uh, a a nice Gulfstream private jet. None of those things. Why? Because preaching the word of God, law and gospel, preaching Christ and him crucified, just doesn't seem to be as popular as that health and prosperity gospel heresy. However, we still have needs here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, we have production costs. We have airtime fees. We have uh, salary. we got a salary you got to pay, too. And, uh, folks, in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you, we need your help and to financially support us so that we can continue bringing you this important outreach. You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com, which is also the home of our uh, program archives, too, and uh, clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, and that allows you to uh, use our online secure credit card processing for sending in your gift. Or you can uh, do it the other way, and that is that you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So there you have it. Wow. Interesting program today. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, you can do so at... uh, Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook. Look me up. My name's Chris Roseboro, or you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you in his grace and mercy and peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs>